All right. We'll see. Get a little music going here. Welcome to the Cinema Shit Show. Ugh. What are you doing here? What? What are you doing here? What do you, what do you mean, what am I doing in here? What do you mean, what do I mean? Podcasting is this is Bad Movies We Love. Not my show? No, it's not your show. Holy fuck, this isn't even my house! Yeah, this is my house. Did you drug me? Maybe. Fine, then shut up and get in here and do it, Nick. It's your fucking show, you goddamn shit snake. Damn right it is. This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. Yo. I'm back. It's good to hear that music. It's good to be back. I am your host, Nick Scheist. Thank you to Nick's for holding it down, or trying to at least, but this is Bad Movies We Love. Now, as you may have noticed, I haven't been around for the last six weeks or so. Actually, looking at the calendar, it's 45 days, so it's closer to seven weeks. I haven't published an episode since January 16th. I've been dealing with some family stuff, and I'm not going to get into the details of all that now. I may actually do that for the website, thescheiss.com, and put my thoughts down in a more measured and long-form format. But in those seven weeks, everything was basically shut down for me. I did end up recording one episode that I forgot to turn my booking page off. So I saw the request come through to record, and I didn't want to say no, so I did it. And that got me back on track. But in that vacuum, when I wasn't producing new episodes, there was part of me that was afraid that the show was just kind of gonna die because there's a lot of focus on content and honestly I had worked really hard over the last couple of years to get the show where it was so I can't act like I wasn't afraid to have lost all of that momentum and while everything was going on I hadn't even looked at the hosting dashboard for the show since I published the last episode and I finally did around the end of February and Much to my surprise, and to the credit of all of you listeners out there, the show in February, despite me not releasing an episode, actually is the second most listened to month of the show ever. And I I don't think that I have the words to fully express my gratitude to those of you who continue to listen to the show to talk about the show, to share the show around. It really lifted me up at a time when I was feeling very down. And if you're listening to this, that means that you really are the resistance. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And I'm really happy to be back. So what do you say we kick the tires and light the fires on a brand new episode? I was joined back in mid 
January by my new friend Stephanie, who joined the Scheist International Film Club and has been an absolutely wonderful new addition to the club. She's always consistent. She always shows up. She's always got something to say. And she had mentioned to me a movie that when it came out, took a lot of flack. But I enjoyed it at the time as well. And I had never seen anybody stand up for it. So I twisted her arm like maybe a tiny little bit. And I told her she should come on the show and talk about this movie. And she agreed. So Daniel Espinosa becomes one of only two directors who have been featured on this show twice as we dive in to his 2017 sci-fi horror film, Life. Good cast, cool story, really exciting and interesting alien. But this is like a hyper-intelligent, very strong piece of Kleenex. Um, yeah, the creatures. So fascinating. That's, I think, one of the, the biggest strengths of the movie. Everybody's grumpy when they first wake up. I mean, he was in a deep sleep and suddenly he's being electrocuted. I would shit my pants. It's terrifying. Why is your hand in that box? Like, you have not established to me that this is a good idea. I, I mean, I love it. That's why I'm talking about it. <laughs> well, this isn't the Ryan Reynolds that I'm accustomed to, and now he's dead. I mean, it, sure, getting eaten inside out by an alien is probably not great. Everybody on board would be on the same page about that. Granted, you're in space, so when things go bad, they go very, very bad. And I think some people would probably just either subconsciously or intentionally look at that and say, well, it's no alien. but. I continue to be fascinated with the story and, and what could be happening after the credits roll. We're looking at the first proof of life beyond Earth. You're finally a daddy. It's going to be a big custody battle over this one. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie, welcome to the show. This is uh, your your first podcast. So I'm glad that you trusted me to be the one uh, to make that journey with. Oh, yeah, I'm so happy. Um, I love talking movies and it's going to be a great time. This, since this is your first time, I've had a lot of repeat guests on the show over the course of the last like two seasons. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and sort of what informs your taste in film? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's not a whole lot to tell. I'm just somebody who loves movies. Loved movies since I was a kid, uh, especially horror movies. Um, you know, I saw my first horror movie when I was about seven. It was Poltergeist. Ooh. Oh, yeah. And uh, I've been hooked ever since. Um, and I just uh, probably in the last couple of years started really trying to see more movies that I haven't seen, you know, both um you know like the old classics and you know newer high budget stuff like i'm kind of in this uh this phase where i'm watching anything and everything and just trying to learn more and having a good time awesome uh and i too was a kid that was like raised on horror probably like way too early you know i saw like rosemary's baby and carrie and all this stuff before i was 10 
So I was introduced to a lot of that era of horror around the same time. But you, like me, seem to be a pretty big sci-fi fan. And so today we're going to be talking about Daniel Espinosa's life from 2017. And I double checked the the episodes that I have listed. And just off the top of my head, I think Espinosa becomes one of two directors. So he joined some elite company on this show as being one of two directors who has been covered on bad movies we love more than <laughs> once. And I mean, the other director is Paul Verhoeven, so it's not bad company to be in at all. Um, but why are we talking about this film today? That is a good question. I mean, you know, because the podcast is bad movies we love. And I honestly don't think this is a bad movie. I um, I, I mean, I love it. That's why I'm talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of like forced your hand as well because you had mentioned that you liked it. And I was like, oh, you know what? I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that. I don't think I've ever really heard anybody like be super derogatory about it either. So I looked at the numbers and I was like, OK, it technically falls within the parameters of what I would allow on this show. It's got a solid IMDb score, 6-6. Six, six. So kind of like right in the mid-range. It's liked by the audiences. That's totally solid. But it's Metacritic scores of 54. And then oddly enough, the Rotten Tomatoes critic score is <clears throat> a 68. But the critic score, or excuse me, the critic score is a 68. The audience scores a 54. So reverse. <laughs> And then let Letterbox has it at a three. So it's like basically right in the middle, right on the borderline. Yeah, that's um, that's kind of odd, you know, that that the in sometimes that the critics liked it more than the audiences, because usually that's uh, with with this type of movie, especially it's usually flip flopped, you know, like, um, I mean, obviously horror tends to not be critic favorites. And then. Um, uh, you know, kind of a big, big budget, big name actors also sometimes get overlooked by the critics. So I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean. We'll get into the we'll get into the nitty gritty of this. But yeah, you had brought it up. And then I just was kind of like, hey, this is a great opportunity to come on the show and talk about why you love this film and why maybe the critics are wrong or why people have sort of miscategorized this over the years uh it's not that old either so it's nice to do a movie that isn't a movie from the 80s or a movie from the 90s which a lot of this show tends to focus on because there is 20 30 years at that point sometimes 40 years of history of this being a movie that is kind of like recognized as being bad but also celebrated for being bad so maybe down the line, this will be one of those movies, but I don't think so. I think, you know, we've seen just since 2017, this movie is sort of like stabilized, where when I first heard people talk about it, I didn't hear anybody that liked it. And then so to see that, hey, the, the user scores are pretty solid and like it seems to have sort of just stabilized as a, you know, a, a solid movie. That's a uh, that's encouraging. But do you want to give a brief overview of uh, what this movie is about for anybody that may not have seen it yeah yeah i mean you know i'll try to be brief <laughs> hopefully i won't <laughs> go into a crazy long uh tirade but um so it takes place on the international space station in the very near future i think it's supposed to be you know like 
basically could be a couple years away kind of thing. And they are getting this um, this sample from a Mars um, uh, from a Mars rover or something that possibly has life in it. And their mandate is to study it on board the ISS and figure out if there is life. And uh, they managed to reanimate said life and, you know, whackiness ensues. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, and this is, like you said, it's set in the not too distant future. I mean, at the time that this movie was made, we're probably, you know, past the timeline of the film now in 2024. But it is an interesting piece of the contemporary sci-fi in that it's not focused on something that like when I did uh, Robot Jocks or when I did uh, Event Horizon recently for the show, like these are way in the future. Granted, one of those futures is being portrayed from the 80s looking forward. But looking at a movie like Event Horizon that was in the late 90s, they're like, oh, yeah, by 2030, you're going to be, you know, mining minerals on Mars. And so then we get to this movie that takes like a little bit more nuanced approach to that and tries to grounded and make it more real in terms of what the actual science fiction is and once again mars is involved of course and we have just like regular astronauts where we're looking at it like hey this could be happening right now or soon rather than like oh this is something you need to be fearing in 50 years from now yeah i think um i think the only mention of any sort of Anything that kind of grounds its chronology is when one of the astronauts says he remembers seeing the Challenger explode. So that kind of grounds it as like, well, it can't be too far in the future um, because he, you know, obviously that happened in 1986. So he mentions, you know, that happening when he was a kid. But I, other than that, um, and the fact that there's not too many like, you know, crazy technology or anything like that, it definitely feels like it could be happening today kind of thing yeah and you got to figure that you know jake is like probably 40 so 43 yeah oh, okay <laughs> well his character <laughs> is well this was seven years ago too so i'm figuring his character is like late 30s early 40s and yeah. like he was in grade school ish around the time that he saw the challenger explode so it was like a formative moment for him as well and I think it like it informs some of what I really wanted from the character that I ultimately like don't end up getting. But I mean, this cast is so big and so good that, you know, I think the movie that I want out of this is probably two and a half hours long. And, yeah. you know, this comes in at what, like an hour and a half ish hour, 45. So not I think it's closer to two. Is it? But I don't I didn't I didn't make note of that, but I okay. feel like it's like 158 or something like that yeah. i have I th a weird memory for numbers so. okay well i think the one i watched last night said 141 but i'm looking here and i see it listed as 144 so i don't know well yeah it's <laughs> not, not definitely not a two and a half hour movie that's for sure it is not yeah um and i know that you love this movie but if you had to sort of like step outside yourself and be as objective as possible what are the reasons why you think someone might say this is a bad movie? Um, you know, I bet some people look at it and it's hard not to make a comparison to Alien, you know, because it is an alien killing a crew in space. Um, 
And I think some people would probably just either subconsciously or intentionally look at that and say, well, it's no alien. And, you know, that's true. It's nothing's ever going to be alien. Um, so that might be part of it. Um, I mean, you know, probably the zero G might might rub people the wrong way because mm -hmm. the entire movie, the cast is floating around on wires and if you are looking for it, you can see kind of like the pivot point where the harness is attached. But honestly, I didn't start seeing that until like the fifth time I was watching the movie. I was so into it the first, you know, however many times that I didn't notice any bad zero G effects. But some people might look at that and get taken out of the action because of it. Um, I, you know, I, I, honestly... It's hard for me to come up with things because I think it's great, obviously. Um, you know, I think it's good cast, cool story, really exciting and interesting alien. And uh, gosh, yeah, somebody else will have to tell me why it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that part of the show later. <laughs> and you said you had seen this several times over at this point. And was this something that like when it was in theaters, you're like, I love the cast. I love the director. I'm going to go see this. For sure. Is this something that you let pass you by and then caught it after that and fell in love with it? I had never even heard of it until I stumbled upon it one day in like 2021. I um, I think I had there was like a black hole period where I didn't have TV. And so I wasn't exposed to what movies were coming out. And I didn't go to the theaters for like six or seven years or something crazy like that. So it I had no idea it existed. Um, and. Uh, then I, when I did, when I saw it, you know, the listing on my computer, my, my TV for the streaming or whatever, I was like, wow, this is a lot of big name people. Why have I never heard of this? And it sounds like a really interesting premise. And, um, and uh, yeah, so that, so I gave it a try and immediately liked it. Hmm. Well, that's good to hear. And do you generally like Daniel Espinosa's stuff? Because the other film we covered on here was Morbius, which uh, like became like famous for the wrong reasons within the film club, because like one person really liked Morbius. And so I sort of I didn't pressure him into covering Morbius. But I did say, like, if you're going to come on the show and we're going to talk about a bad movie you love and we're going to not take that opportunity to make it be Morbius, then I feel like we've done ourselves a disservice. So, I mean, I've seen a couple of Espinosa's films. I mean, he did Safe House and uh, Easy Money, and I did not see Child 44. But for me, it's like, okay, he's got an overall small filmography uh, as a director, at least. So, But he looks like he's got a lot of stuff coming down the pipe uh, soon. Yeah, I um so I saw Safe House when it was new and I liked that a lot. Um and I recently saw Child 44. I thought that was okay. Like um nothing I certainly don't fault the direction. Um the story is a little meandering, I suppose is what I would go with. And I haven't seen Morbius yet, but it is on my to to watch list. Um and I foresee that I will enjoy it. But, you know, who knows? I, I've heard, you know, kind of, I've heard that there was a lot of disappointment there, but um, I don't have any baggage going into it. So we'll, well, that's good. we'll see. Yeah, we found out recently that 
the person that we were trying to get to watch Morbius watched it and then gave us a list of all these movies that he hates more than Morbius. So I'm like, all right, it's not the most hated movie of yours. And then some of the stuff on the list as well was like, oh, I don't even think that's a bad movie. So like Morbius has climbed the ranks uh within the film club a little bit surprisingly <laughs> uh but you know we did it we did it all in fun but uh yeah check out morbius because uh yeah we got an episode on morbius as well so sean will be very happy about that yeah definitely will i think now's probably a good time to take a look at the trailer for life because for me it was like okay space check good cast check Okay, creature, check, I'm in. And so this is a movie that I went to theaters for, but I don't really remember the trailer all that well. And I don't know if we're going to get the Red Band one, but I was reading that the Red Band trailer actually gave away a couple of like character deaths. But I mean, in this kind of environment, some people are going to die for sure. So yeah, but you know, that's awful. Given given too much away in the trailer, that's uh, that's terrible. But anyway, let's see. Let's see what we got for it. Let's take a look. Before we get to the trailer, it's time for a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Bad Movies We Love is brought to you by the brand new amphibious specimen for all ages, Sally Mander. Sally Mander was originally developed by NASA engineers as a cross between a pet and a toy to keep astronauts company because, well... It gets lonely in space. But life in zero gravity is no place to raise a puppy or a kitten. So with a few years of research and development and millions of dollars in taxpayer money, scientists were able to create a lab-grown organism that can adapt to any environment and isn't burdened by having a soul. So there's no moral quandaries you need to concern yourselves with. The first prototype was raised and rigorously tested for resiliency to extreme heat, cold, radiation, and even depressurization aboard the International Space Station. If it can withstand the vacuum of space, you can rest assured that no matter how hard you play, Salamander is here to stay. Every Salamander for the consumer market comes in a sealed, pre-pollinated pouch. All you have to do is add some water and watch as your brand new amphibious friend takes form. Thanks to its incredible durability and the fact that it doesn't require sustenance, your salamander can grow with you over a lifetime, making it a perfect companion for the loneliest among us. So remember, when you're looking for that perfect gift this holiday season, it's not quite a pet and not quite a toy. It's the best of both worlds for girls and for boys. It's Salamander. And now, back to the show. Can you see this okay? Yep. All right, let's go. Let me turn that volume down. Hey guys, it's a girl. Hey! Congratulations. Do you have any idea who the father is? Shut up. <laughs> well, story time. All right, let's go. Three, two, one. They did have a lot of needle drops in this movie, too. Our mission is to intercept a research pod from Mars. 16 steps to fix a shower. I'm an astronaut, not a gym teacher. <laughs> This is the first capsule ever to come back from the planet. We have visual confirmation. I see it. It's a pretty this good looking film, though. Come on, 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 come on. Yeah, the CGI holds up pretty well. Of life beyond Earth. Lowering oxygen, more carbon dioxide. That's beautiful. You're finally a daddy. It's going to be a big custody battle over this one. Are you going to bring the Martian back to Earth? 
No, we're going to keep it up here. We're going to study where it's safe. Look how fast it's growing. Every single cell is a muscle cell and a nerve cell. All muscle, all brain. How smart is this thing? Smarter than these people, that's for sure. What's going on? No, you're not These creatures wiped out Mars millions of years ago. If we let it get to Earth, we'll he's definitely beings. explaining some stuff that he's got no me. direct knowledge of. Good night, moon. With dialogue that's not in the film. Good night, yeah. moon. Good night, cow jumping over the moon. But like, I feel like the zero G stuff is done really well, especially a lot Good of the light. like the liquid Good effect as well. What is the primal instinct of any life form? To survive. And like considering sort of We've lost this all communication. look at the space and sort of like the debris and all that. To see that the budget was, I think, only like 50 something million, they spent it well. Noises everywhere. There you go. Tense, space, good cast. Yeah, they, they threw in a lot of the uh, Ryan Reynolds jokes in the, into that trailer. To, yeah, to they did. That. <laughs> yeah, that's that's funny because um, the first scene kind of has a bunch of jokes thrown in. It's kind of a very Deadpool in space. It's uh, which um, which could also turn people off. I know a lot of people aren't aren't big into the kind of the Ryan Reynolds style, but this was also written by the guys who wrote Deadpool. Correct. And Espinosa had worked with Reynolds on Safe House as well. So right. it was all sort of like geared towards him. And even uh, he was supposed to be the lead. Right. Yeah, I remember hearing that. Was the, not the lead. He, he and Gyllenhaal swapped. Yeah. And him, him and Jake are buddies. But, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, if you're a Ryan Reynolds fan, you're going to go see this. And if you're not. I don't think he's enough of a deterrent because like it's not for the most part like what I would say amounts to the sort of like stereotypical Ryan Reynolds performance that we get sure. in the stuff that people would be offended that it's like the same character every time kind of thing for him. But he's done a really good job of capitalizing on that. And then he has the opportunity to take on roles like this. And he's done some really good, serious work in some other films. It's yeah, just he doesn't yeah. do a lot of it. Yeah, definitely. There are a lot of things out there that most people have never heard of that are, you know, pretty good, serious, dramatic acting. He's got chops. He just, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't always bring him out to play. Um, and yeah, I think... It, he throws out his, you know, sarcastic wry quips in this, um, but his character, you know, does have a serious side and he plays that well. Also, you know, for people who uh, maybe get tired of uh, the jokes, you know, he's he's not actually in the movie for that long. <laughs> they uh, they kill him off pretty quick, which is pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, he makes it like 40 minutes in, I think something like that, and then he's gone. And so like if you if you're going to see it for Ryan Reynolds, right? I could understand being like, well, this isn't the Ryan Reynolds that I'm accustomed to. And now he's dead. So <laughs> you could be upset because of that. But 
it also it reminded me a little bit. I think the movie is Executive Decision, where yeah. Steven Steven Seagal dies in the like the first five minutes, but he's top billed in the film as well. And like for me, I'm like I don't like Steven Seagal, so it's just like hilarious to watch him sort of die in that mm-hmm. moment as the planes are attached. But it reminded me a lot of that. But I mean, you get way more Ryan Reynolds here. You get way better uh, return on your investment, at least, than you did out of that Steven Seagal basic uh, cameo. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. I also enjoyed when Steven Seagal died in Executive Decision. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, there's a number of movies that have pulled that trick. Like, you know, the original Scream movie had Drew Barrymore, you know, front and center and everything. And then she's the first to die. So it's kind of kind of like a little like a like a little bait and switch and wink to the audience thing at this point. Yeah. Um you know, with the kind of cast that you have here too, I mean I I feel like I wanted more of them together before the the stuff starts happening with the aliens. I mean, like Hiroki Sonata, Rebecca Ferguson, Jake Gyllenhaal, Ryan Reynolds, like you have some really heavy hitters that have been excellent throughout their careers. And for me, I'm like, I saw something that was listed as a deleted scene. And I'm like, why delete that scene? Unless the studio is like pressuring you to get it under a certain runtime, because the description of the scene gives so much more to the character. And it's like such a small thing too, that just really gives you a better understanding of like why this person is on this mission and what their goal is and like you know so it gives you a better appreciation for like some of the decisions they make down the line and i mean did you feel like you wanted more out of this cast or are you satisfied with what you got yeah definitely like uh, i feel like they all had interesting characters that had very developed backstories that we didn't get to hear that i would have loved to hear and i'm not sure what which deleted scene you're talking about but i saw uh, I have the the UHD Blu-ray that's got mm. a bunch of them on it. And um, one of them is um, uh, Jill and Hall's character is talking to um, show the Japanese character and basically kind of like show saying like, I, I can't command like he's having like this crisis of confidence and it rolls into like, I, I also can't be a father. And it's like this really kind of like interwoven deep, and then, you know, um, Gyllenhaal's character really buoys him up in kind of a um, subtle and beautiful way. And yeah, I would have loved to see more of the kind of the interaction between all the characters and how it ties into why they're there. Um, I also think um, that uh, Rebecca Ferguson's character, Dr. North, is really fascinating. She's kind of she's kind of really outside of the rest of the crew in her motivations is they're all, they all seem to be there, you know, to court of, sort of support the mission of like finding and researching this alien. Whereas she's just kind of like afraid of the entire mission. It's like, it's like her job to be afraid. And she seems like she just wants the alien to die like the entire time. So um, if being able to explore more about her character would have been kind of neat. Um, but yeah, and there's a couple of threads that they kind of dangle at, at you where she's she's talking about her dad and she says, I really miss him. But it feels like there's more there that we don't get to hear that I agree it would have been kind of neat to go deeper into that. 
Yeah, at least the scene that I read about with uh, Sonata uh, show, he's essentially talking about like he wasn't able to him and his wife had struggled to for her to get pregnant for nine years. And then so this thing sort of happened when he was already committed to this mission. And so like he's probably dealing with a lot of guilt, a lot of like resentment for being there and stuff that we just don't really get to see. It's like we see him, you know, of course, he's remotely watching the birth of his child but then immediately like ryan reynolds joke sort of diffuses the seriousness of that but we see him like with the ipad alone sort of lamenting the fact that he's not there to be part of his child's life in that way and then similar to rebecca ferguson like she had turned down this role in the beginning and she had to be convinced to come back and take on the character but we get a guy like uh, Gyllenhaal's David Jordan, like they introduce him. It's like, oh, he's had the longest uh, space tenure, basically. He's been out here longer than anybody else. But they take time to have him examine and tell us that like he's dealing with radiation poisoning and all this. But then like throughout that doesn't ever really become a factor again. He's the most actionable and capable person on the crew which makes sense because he's got the most experience. But if he's like withering away, his muscles are atrophying, he's dealing with radiation poisoning that doesn't ever really seem to pop back up again as something that's like either guiding his decisions to be self-sacrificial or interfering with his ability to actually be a functional helper because he's sick. Like, It'd be one thing if they're dealing with him like, oh, he's now kind of like dead weight, but we're trying to keep him alive, which you see happens with um, the Dr. Derry, who like he gets his hand crippled and then they kind of have to like babysit him like after he gets injured and he's already uh, paralyzed from the waist down. So he's struggling with immobility issues already. And so I don't know, I just felt like there was a lot, like you said, a lot of rich actual character there that just doesn't make it onto the screen. And like the actors are so good and so formidable that they carry the character past with them. But I feel like in a lot of movies where you have ensembles and especially movies that are horror movies with ensembles, part of what makes it enjoyable or maybe successful as a horror film is that you have to spend time getting to like the characters first before they start getting picked off. And I feel like that was the thing that like in the beginning, it was almost like, no, you just, you see all their faces, you recognize them as like A-list actors. And you're just kind of like on board with that because I felt like the, uh, by the time that they actually like do what they're supposed to do. And they're from that time to rescuing the pod to generating the life form is like very very quick it is it's before the title card yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, sorry that's <laughs> yeah, okay um yeah but you yeah what you were talking about with um with the show character and how you know like in the deleted scene his wife and him had trouble conceiving that really like if if you had if we had gotten that it would have made more sense how his desperation to get to the Soyuz capsule thinking it's a rescue. He is, you know, um, desperate to get back to his his wife and his yeah. new child because of, you know, that there's his life waiting for him. And uh, that kind of would have brought his fear and desperation into into greater focus if we had been shown that scene. I agree. And then. um with uh with david jordan's character or with with the character of david jordan (laughs) and 
there there were a bunch of different ways that they could take what you were talking about with him being up there for a long time and the and the, the muscle atrophy and all that kinds of things. Um, I think mostly they were talking about how long he'd been up there to show, to kind of uh, uh, set up his extremely heroic act in the end where he decides to to fly off to space with the alien and save the earth because it kind of they kind of set him up as this kind of miserly you know like i hate humans um and it's uh it's really like he's just too he's too empathetic is the thing especially in that scene that deleted scene with him and show really um really makes clear that he hates people because he loves people too much you know and i would have loved for that scene to have stayed in because it is it does do a lot with a with a short amount of time i agree that i don't really know why that would have been cut out but yeah i mean it's you know probably a studio decision at that point but it is what it is but uh we also sort of get like the thing i'm talking about with sort of not getting enough time with the characters before shit hits the fan. Like we're barely introduced to one of the most important characters in terms of the catalyst for this film in Arian uh, Bakare's Dr. Derry. Like he is just, okay, I'm here and I'm already, I'm dealing with this alien creature here. But before that, we don't really have a ton of time to like get to know him to maybe make him the most prominently featured character before we get him into the room where he's getting his hand destroyed. So it's like we're all out there with everybody else that we know, all the familiar faces, all the A-list talent. We're all on the outside of the door with them watching this guy who we're supposed to be feeling really bad for. And of course, it's like, yeah, this isn't like fun to watch this happen to him. But I just feel like there was like a lack of connection to that character by the time that that incident happens so that i'm not understanding i mean like i know what the movie is trying to tell me in that moment but i feel like for all of these characters to sort of like watch this happen it's not maybe it doesn't land as well as i had hoped but that the scene itself is great like i love calvin's design i love the idea that, you know, you sort of have nurtured this thing and haven't taken it seriously. But again, like you're the scientist, like that is supposed to be the most cautious here. Mm-hmm. And you are treating this almost like it's a baby kitten yeah. versus like some inter, you know, intergalactic life form. And it's like, so I guess I'm like, I'm torn a little bit, like for his motivations of the character, like if they were there, say, like, uh, they had gotten a bunch of samples and then they're trying all the samples and it's not working, not working, not working, not working. And then they finally get one and it's like, OK, this one's alive. And now we really have to nurture it to see what's going on. It would like it would it would uh, increase the value of the connection that this character has to this life form and to the science that he's performing, because it's like it's horrible to like watch like how he gets his hand demolished by Calvin. Like that's a terrible scene. Uh, I mean, it's a good scene, but it's terrible, like having to watch that. But I feel like we should, as the audience, like really be more on the side of like we understand 
why he was doing it more because to me i'm just like why is your hand in that box like you have not established to me that this is a good idea or that your character has realistic expectation that this is like going to be something that you should do regardless of the risk true enough you you would think that they would have some sort of animatronic arm or something to to start out with at least rather than just stick your hands (laughs) in at the mercy of the alien but uh But yeah, you know, you make a good point. We don't really get um, much understanding of his motivations um, other than the fact that, you know, he's he's billed as an exobiologist. So studying the alien life or whatever uh, possibility of alien life, genesis of life is kind of his shtick. But I mean, they 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 show him they show his uh, his legs and and introduce that he's a paraplegic, but they don't really tie that in any meaningful way to to his drive and his mission um which it could have been done you know with maybe a few more words here or there yeah i think there's like there's like sort of a a line of dialogue where he says like the applications of what this like could mean to people to like help cure diseases and stuff but again it's like yeah okay this would have like mad it would have been a more impactful line and would have meant more to your character had we spent like just another half an hour with you guys before like this stuff in the film happens. But that being said, I love Calvin's escape. Like that whole sequence, I really was just like fascinated by the the design of the creature and the way that they're like, no, rather than make it this sort of uh, monster that is scary and powerful and dangerous this thing is going to be hyper intelligent and it's going to be excellent at solving problems. And it actually reminded me a lot of an octopus because yeah. I've se- yeah, I've seen these videos of like, they do like bait traps where they're trying to like, see how the octopus like opens this trap in order to get into eat the little piece of fish or whatever. And octopus are super intelligent octopi and like it's designed physically like that a little bit as well. So I'm like, okay, let me just, treat this like a space octopus and that i think lends itself really well to not just like making it sort of scary but also maybe slightly non-threatening at first because you look at it it's like it's slithery it's got tentacles okay but then by the time like we reach calvin's final form it's got like a really terrifying face to it (laughs) yeah that's one of my favorite things about uh you know the design of calvin is it's not, it's not like you said, it's not your typical terrifying alien. There's no, you know, big jaws dripping saliva and ready to, you know, punch a hole in your skull. It's um, everything about him is utilitarian. It's, but that's what makes it so dangerous is the, the utility that it does possess and the things that it is able to do. Um, and, and the fact that it, it can not only outsmart them, but it can survive things that they didn't expect it could be able to survive and it can kind of use its its features in ways that um that they don't expect and um you know how it can slither through the the um you know the emergency sprinklers to get Mm. out of the lab and how it can survive outside in the vacuum of space and it's all utility that makes it so terrifying yeah and i think that aspect of it is played up fairly well 
because that's the thing, like you said, it's the thing that makes it scary because, you know, it's like, it looks like a piece of Kleenex for the most part, but this is like a hyper intelligent, very strong piece of Kleenex that if you try to touch it will snap your hand and, uh, okay, it's resistant to fire. It's resistant to basically like any kind of physical damage that you could think of. Because as Rebecca Ferguson's character states in the trailer that we see there, that little bit where she says it's all muscle, all brain. So I love the design and the approach to how they wanted to make Calvin a realistic threat. Because this isn't something where it was like, hey, we want it to be menacing and ripping doors off and things like that. We want it to be like all of these smart, capable people, for the most part. I mean, they're astronauts, so they've got they've got to work hard to get there for sure. But all these smart, capable people are in their own environment where they should have fail safes in place, where they should be more than capable of handling a problem. Granted, you're in space. So when things go bad, they go very, very bad. But to have a character that really doesn't ever do anything other than outsmart them, I think is really a a wise choice and a choice that I liked a lot because not only does it mess with the characters heads of like you have the Dr. Derry being like, Oh, well it shouldn't be able to survive this and maybe it shouldn't survive this. But then like in the next breath, he's like, well, these creatures ruled Mars and it's like, all right, well, I I don't think you're that much of an expert, but at the same time you have to to actually like physically design this creature like in the art department. And so that first scene where it takes the the little like stun rod and mm. snaps it and then uses it to puncture a hole in the glove. I was like I'd love that scene because it's like the realization of the crew in that moment that like holy crap this thing is hyper intelligent. It's solving this problem very very fast. And like I would shit my pants. In that moment, I would there be poo floating all over the space station because I don't know what I would do in that moment, like with Alien, uh, like or with any other Alien film, when there's like a large creature that you can kind of wrap your head around. It's like, okay, well, if we like trap it in this area, we're okay until it's like maybe it's strong enough to rip the doors off or there's a secret passage that we didn't really know about. And like that does kind of come into play here. But you see that how fast it uh, sort of manipulates them uh, when we see it with uh, Derry later in the film, where because he's paralyzed, he doesn't realize that this thing has attached itself. Exactly. It's like just slowly eating him the way that we see it dissolve the, the rat and sort of like use that tissue to then build itself up and how quickly it grows like when it kills Ryan Reynolds, right? It doesn't cocoon him in the way that it did the rat because he's too big. So it just sort of like eats him from the inside out. Yeah, that's terrifying. (laughs) It is gross. But I will say too, the, the zero G like blood effects are really good because I I know like CGI blood is, is a tough sell sometimes. And especially when it's used in like low budget action movies because they're not squibbing everybody. So then you'll see people getting like shot and they want to do slow-mo and like the blood just doesn't look great. But in this, I felt like the blood looked really good. And it makes that sort of moment with Reynolds much more haunting 
in that like he's just in the corner and he's trying to like get away from them because he knows he takes the headset off. He's like, I don't want to hear you guys like talking about like trying to save me. Like I'm done at this point. So I just need to go into the fetal position by myself and to just like watch him like vomit up blood and like all this stuff. And then the thing slithers out and it's like 10 times as big as it was the first time. Like this thing is evolving very quickly. And so it puts everybody on the ship in a position where it's like, you know what? We might be smarter than this thing now. We might not be. And if we give it time, who knows? Like this thing may really be smarter than we are. And if we don't get rid of it sooner rather than later, we're in deep shit. I think without a doubt, it's uh, it's a superior species. I mean, if you really take a step back and think about it, like I think they were, you know, the they were they were working with it for like 25 days or something before Mm -hmm. it's able to escape. Can you imagine any creature that's only 25 days old? being able to outsmart a human like that's (laughs) freaking crazy and then it just uh it just seems to get smarter and smarter as the movie goes along and um and like you said earlier like absolutely nothing that they do can hurt it they there's you know there's kind of a refrain through horror movies especially creature one movies where it's like if it bleeds i can kill it well this this thing didn't bleed they couldn't figure out a way to even scratch it um and one thing i think was Uh, potentially really interesting that they did not explore is since they talked about how each of the cells can perform every somatic function on its own um if they were able to get you know chop a piece off of it or something that piece could theoretically function on its own as another alien you know like they could just maybe they're just making it reproduce it by just trying to destroy it that would have been a a different movie but <laughs> pretty funny uh pretty interesting to to watch and definitely terrifying i uh it would have been it would have been nice in my mind if they had at least like put voice to that worry um like you know are, in trying to kill this thing are we just you know digging ourselves deeper into the hole but um yeah the creature is so fascinating that's i think one of the the biggest strengths of the movie yeah absolutely i mean i feel like that's why I was like, I just I feel like I want this movie to be longer. Give me like two and a half hours. Give me way more character development and way more Calvin. And then we really have like, I think something that is a lot more robust because, you know, Derry gets basically crippled and taken out of the picture pretty early. Right mm-hmm. after that, Ryan Reynolds dies. And then uh, Kat the one of the russian scientists like she's dead within like another 10 minutes right after that so all of a sudden like they do go really fast and it's like it's frightening to think that a all of these characters are like that vulnerable that quickly but b that you're not gonna have really like time to prepare for their deaths in that like okay well here's this character that i've gotten attached to and like i don't want to see them die so I think like that impacts for me Kat's death probably the most because like I'm already familiar with Ryan Reynolds. Like I know what he's going to bring to the table. It's like surprising to see him die. But as an audience member, I'm like, I already sort of have that tangible connection with him. Whereas with uh, Kat, she, I feel, has like one of the worst deaths in the film. I mean, sure, getting eaten inside out like by an Mm -hmm. alien is probably not great but it feels more 
unstoppable. Whereas like with Kat, she was so close to finding a way to be able to sort of escape. And then it's like, oh, Calvin punctured the coolant line. So it's not even he's eating her. He's crushing her. It's not a physical force. It's this slow building thing to where she's drowning in her own coolant on the outside of the airlock and then having to lock the door herself as Jake is on the other side of the door screaming to like let him help her. So, you know, they they have to then tell us too in that moment and they don't have to, but they bring in one of the characters that says like, oh, she's intentionally doing it. Like she's mm-hmm. locking the door to make sure that Calvin doesn't get in. But then in that moment, like Calvin's just like out in space for a while while they're trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> and so right. like you just see that, oh yeah, Calvin's just gonna hang out out there and try and like figure a way back inside. But for him to also like he jumps from the body too, like he recognizes. Well, I don't know if it's a he, but Calvin, the thing, <laughs> we'll call him a he. <laughs> jumps from Cat's body as she's sort of floating into space to to land back on the space station because it knows that hey, like I can't just be jettisoned into space here. I have a much better chance of survival on the station, and so like it it displays hyper intelligence in a way that I really enjoy in this film. Yeah, definitely. And that, um, that death scene with the cat's death scene is it's, it's terrifying. And it's, it's also really, you know, pretty deep because she's, you know, the commander of the mission and she feels this responsibility to try to, you know, save the lives of all the people, you know, working under her. And, and she sees this opportunity to, she, she's pretty sure she's, had it anyway because even once she gets inside the airlock they've got to you know get her suit off which you know those giant marshmallow suits you know seem like quite a process to do on and off that you know so she she probably thinks she's she's had it and she might as well um have something good come out of it sacrifice herself to save everybody but and it turns out it's uh it's only it's like a hiccup for calvin he doesn't even seem to to it doesn't doesn't matter at all he's able to find a way back in pretty pretty darn quickly so yeah at that point they realized that they're they were gonna like crash the space station but then they don't want calvin getting to earth so then they have to burn the thrusters to get back to orbit and then he crawls inside so he's just whatever just i don't care if there's gas being jettisoned directly in my face you know you can burn (laughs) me with a torch And like that was one of the things sort of in the initial not escape sequence, but when Reynolds goes in to try and burn it with the torch and it doesn't work, I feel like he bought himself enough time to get out of the room and they would have just had Calvin locked down in that one room. But instead, like he keeps trying to burn it, keeps trying to burn it, keeps trying to burn it with no success. But like, just get, just burn it and get out of the room and well, then lock know, it the, in there. <laughs> that That's a moment that I think is, um, he's, he's just like basically panicked and completely terrified. Like you can see the way he, he keeps, you know, shooting the flame at, at basically nothing. Like it's not there and he keeps shooting it and shooting it and shooting it, knowing that he has limited fuel and they're trying to tell him from outside the room, like, stop, just stop. But he's just panicked, terrified, not thinking rationally, just 
very afraid the entire time. And you can you can actually see that sort of foreshadowed when um when he goes in to like fix the clamp that had initially like, you know, fucked up the air pressure in Calvin's box and and he comes back out and he's like, I don't want to be around that thing. I'm not qualified to be around that thing. So you can kind of see like the fear is already there. And then once he's in the room with Calvin and it's just the two of them, he's he doesn't have much capacity to think rationally anymore at that point. Yeah, it's like I just feel like when he goes in, like he immediately does like the instinctual thing and saves his friend, right? He just lets instinct take over, grabs him, gets him out of the room. And then it's like, oh, now I have to deal with Calvin. So it's like maybe he already kind of knew that that was it, you know, by the time that him and Calvin are in the room together. It's like, can you unquarantine him knowing that Calvin has like even touched you? at this point so like if like that to me makes more sense but it's just like a simple line of dialogue in there that would have been like because you see jake slam the door in his face and they use that scene in the trailer but they also make it seem in the trailer like it is this psychological warfare between the two of them like oh maybe you're infected or you're infected and one of us is messed up in the head so they kind of like toy with that in the trailer which never becomes an issue and there's not like really inner any um, interpersonal turmoil or backstabbing between the characters so it isn't like that kind of film but i did find it interesting that we get like almost to the end of the movie and then rebecca ferguson's like oh yeah by the way i've been lying to you guys about like <laughs> what the situation was gonna be like it's like wait a second like why not just tell us this exactly and that part is kind of kind of unrealistic in my mind. Like I would think that everybody on board would be on the same page about that. And not only, and I, I wouldn't even think it would be a controversial point. Like it seems like, well, of course, that's just that's just what we have to do. We're we're putting ourselves in this position. We know it. We're gonna we're gonna take this on. It doesn't seem like that could be something that they would be able to kind of keep secret impose on people without their knowledge but yeah you're right it does seem like um that uh, the commander cat seems like the only other one who knows the agreement about we're all expendable up here <laughs> and it's like hey okay that would make sense like because she's russian and so throughout our, our history we've always been at odds with russia so it would make sense to be like okay the russians knew something that they didn't tell us right but to have it be like the UK science officer who's like, oh, yeah, so we have all these fail safes in place. And fail safe number one was a box. Number two, <laughs> fail safe number two was the room. And then the third one was the whole station. Uh, and so they're just going to like they could have nuked the station. They could have destroyed it. They could have done a lot of things. But to, to have the resources of like another shuttle come up there and then dock and push them out. It's like, why not just launch an ICBM at them and just call it a day? Yeah, very, very good point. Would have uh, would have been a shitty ending for a movie, though. <laughs> Any less shitty than the one that we got? <laughs> oh, I fucking love that ending. Part <laughs> my friend. Yeah, no, um, that was that was great, like uh, terrifying and, and also stoking the flames of the this is a Venom prequel rumor. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a debacle. Yeah, I don't need like why because like Spider Man was owned by Paramount at the time. Yeah, like I um I I read a bunch of you know like those kinds of 
things that people wrote up in the in the moment about like conspiracy theories about this. And it was like, yeah, it's a Sony property. And because of the fact that Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick um, were already kind of like doing, you know, Marvel characters mm-hmm. as writers. And um, I don't know. Oh, oh, the name too, like because it was called Life and in Venom, it's the Life Foundation. And like, mm-hmm. I, yeah, it very loosely connected but right yeah you know <laughs> probably it's enough that that i can understand why the rumors happen but like once you watch the movie it's it's not it's it's not nah. yeah <laughs> so i mean like you said you like this ending i didn't mean shitty as in like bad but like in the, shitty myth. For the character. In, in yes exactly shitty for us as the audience shitty for the characters because for that world too yeah yeah like this is this is earth like earth's about to be screwed and you know espinosa was like yeah i have no i no intentions of making a sequel or anything for this i was like i feel like you owe us a sequel at this point because it's got to be life to life on earth and we see yeah i mean calvin probably wins because like he's already growing and cocooning or whatever by the time he gets down to the service of the planet but i feel like as smart as calvin is i don't know that he would understand how to like what the joystick the gyllenhaal is operating actually does like because they make sure that he's smart he's a good problem solver but he has no experience with like a life pod or something that can be controlled a remote control so like aside from just like wanting to break gyllenhaal's hand like just because (laughs) does like would he really understand that okay i need to get his hand off of the control stick here so that we crash back on earth and i don't know that i can wrap my head around that but i can wrap my head around him just not trusting jake and realizing that he's trapped and that he doesn't have a choice other than to do the opposite of what jake is trying to do yeah the the idea that just getting Jake's hand off the stick is going to be enough for the craft to get back on that really perfect trajectory to enter the Earth's atmosphere safely is a, it's a little far-fetched. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, the whole point is like, so there's the autopilot that's, you know, will do it all for you. He already disengages that. He's already held the stick for a little while. So it's already off course. So really, is Calvin smart enough to to not just take his hand off, but to, I don't know, maneuver the stick so that it gets back in manual mode on the correct entry trajectory. Yeah, that's that's a little uh, a little <laughs> unlikely. But I mean, he's uh, got the extra legs so that he can restrain Jake and steer at the same time. So it's like he'll have the opportunity at least. Exactly. Exactly. Um. But you don't feel that the ending was like depressing. Was this it was the ending where you're like, yeah, Calvin's on Earth and he's going to kill everybody or like, I feel bad for Rebecca just floating away in space or I mean, Jake is still alive when they land on Earth. So he has to deal with like, hey, I finally made it home, but also Calvin's with me and I'm like part of his cocoon here. Oh, yeah, it's I mean, it's definitely grim. Uh, but it's one of those endings where, you know, I look at it and I guess I'm like, have get perverse joy from shit like that. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Damn, yeah, look at that. Oh, now he's on earth. 
wrong pod. And, you know, like I just, I, I enjoyed the, the impact of it, I guess, you know, but, but I agree with you. A, a sequel would be interesting to watch. I'm not saying they should make one because everything's a sequel these days, but I continue to be fascinated with, um, with the story and, and what could be happening after the credits roll. Yeah, I just feel like if you were to make a sequel, like picking up from where this left off, you know, it's a very different movie at that point. Like, sure, you're still dealing with an alien, but it's a very different type of horror film. And it's probably not even horror. You maybe just go into like sci-fi action, you know, and it's how the military is dealing with this and whether or not this is going to be a global level catastrophe or like does calvin grow to the size of a godzilla like creature you know <laughs> because at that point if calvin's in the ocean or on one of these boats he's going to eat a shark and then he's just like 35 feet long and so sooner or later what does this creature become what is the gap between when they crashed and how long it is before the next time they see him like what is what is even the motivation of calvin other than survival and growth at that point because they don't ever really make that clear but it's like he definitely wants to find a way to live that's why by the time it gets to that shuttle escape it's like okay does he really know that like hey we need to go crash into earth because that's really what i want he's like i've been living on mars me and my creatures have lived there and ruled mars for a long time and we've hated earth for all these <laughs> millennia and now i finally get a chance to go to earth and kill everybody like it's not that thought out but i would like to see what happens after they land on earth yeah that's that's a very good point because you know like all the things that happen in this movie is calvin trying to survive and and really kind of reacting to stimuli about he's shocked and he's um suddenly hurt and kind of lashing out when he gets on earth, is he going to be a monster? Is he going to be killing people? Or is he now that he has some space and some opportunity for safety? Is he just, I don't know, gonna go on his way and become part of the ecosystem? You never know. I mean, like, because because the whole buildup of this movie is that he's, it's an animal. It's not he's not inherently evil. And, you know, um, Dr. Derry's character, Dr. Dr. Derry says, it doesn't hate us it, it it doesn't want to hurt us it just life's existence requires death you know he has to kill us to survive so once he's on earth and he's got some relative safety i don't know is he just gonna chill out <laughs> do you think that calvin would have been friendly had he not hit him with the cattle prod when he was that sleeping is that is definitely a good question. And I think very possible because, you know, all the interactions that they had leading up to that were just kind of playful and, you know, checking each other out. And if, if he hadn't been shocked back into, you know, everybody's grumpy when they first wake up. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was in a deep sleep and suddenly he's being electrocuted. Yeah. So yeah, who knows <laughs> that, that could have been the, the moment that, that, that warped the entire movie that that soured the interspecies relations yeah and it feels like a fulcrum point for the movie as well where had you really like focused on that narrative of like this thing is sleeping you know that it's sleeping you don't need to like wake it up for your own entertainment 
or to like further your own goals, but they don't really like pump the brakes there at all. But it is an interesting comment on like how humanity views their relationship to discoveries in that like this now belongs to us and it is ours to experiment with at our discretion not really taking calvin into account he's like oh just give me the thing and i'm just gonna tase him until he wakes up but it's like yeah no wonder calvin's pissed when he wakes up because it was like hey this maybe would have been a friendly relationship he looked like a little flower and then you got him upset and he turns into this like mean ass octopus so I, I like the idea that that sort of commentary is there. I would have loved for it to be fleshed out more and for Espinosa and the writers to actually like take a side. Like, is this a negative view of earth science and like humanity in general? Or like it was Calvin always going to be a hostile force kind of thing? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, the hubris of of humans and their experimentation with other species and you know it's obviously we've seen it all throughout our history and it's definitely played out in this movie just like you said like not only did we find this creature but we we're gonna poke it we're gonna prod it we're gonna take it and and kind of bend it to our purpose like even even the way uh, Derry was talking about it like he could unlock, you know, the mysteries of life and we could under, we could learn so much from him and is not, there's not really much of a appreciation just for the creature as a creature, but, but only utility and what we could learn from it. That's very, very human. <laughs> yeah. And I think like in other movies where we get characters that are dealing with animals and we see a character sort of like abuse an animal. I think because we as the audience already have a relationship with that animal, it's like we don't want to see the abuse. And then when maybe the animal lashes out, it's like, OK, like this person deserved what they got. But in this, it's like we don't have that kind of relationship with Calvin. It's like he is almost just the single cell organism that, you know, it's just like a little piece of tissue, like I said. So it's like we don't there's not a face on it. Right. It's not like a cute little puppy or a kitten, something that we can easily relate to but i think yeah if you step back and you look at it just like this is a life form and this doctor these people these scientists treated it as if it was like a, a petri dish to to use at their discretion like then okay like maybe i kind of understand calvin a little bit better like you know if, if i was deep sleeping and you just tased me until i woke up i would probably wake up very angry as well and you know if your hand was available maybe i would try to break it because that was holding the cattle prod so me i don't know i'm liking calvin more and more he was always my favorite part of the movie because i love the design i love the the art style of developing that particular alien but now it's like i'm more team calvin i don't want to necessarily see him come back to earth and kill everybody and you know there's some people i don't feel feel like i wanted to see die in this environment either but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm more pro Calvin than I was at the beginning of this conversation. Yeah, let's uh, let's also talk about his name, Calvin. Right. I mean, you know, so it's this completely terrifying creature that's got this kind of like this name that you I don't know, it evokes sort of like this bespectacled nerdy guy, uh, Calvin. It's just uh, I love the incongruity there. And obviously, you know, they give us the backstory of he's named after the Calvin Coolidge Elementary School or whatever. But but it's just so funny going through the entire movie like, oh, my gosh, 
lurking around every corner could be this terrifying creature, Calvin. Right. <laughs> I know it'd be like, OK, throw some glasses on him and then it's like maybe it's like he doesn't look as menacing, but he still is menacing. Uh, but th- there is a mo- there's th- I think there's several moments in the film, actually, where they kind of like want to not necessarily like talk about him that way. They're like, why stop calling it Calvin? Like, stop talking about it as if it's like this living like thing that we have a relationship with. It's like start viewing it as a threat to our life that we need to get rid of and stop giving it a name. You know, exactly. They, say, they yeah. say that like if you're like fostering like animals or something, it's like don't name it because then you're going to develop attachments and stuff like that. And so I think a little bit of that is at play here, too. But I do like that they're just like, oh, yeah, we're going to have a satellite phone call with this school that won a contest and they're going to name it after their school because they won the contest. Like how, you know, I guess superficial that kind of is in this environment. Like you don't need to give it a name. There's no need to have a contest to name the alien that is like you know at that point the size of like a dime bag and there's no (laughs) there's no reason to do that like it's one thing if it was like it was going to be in a zoo or something by the time they brought it back to earth but at that point like why why even name it so i do think that 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 espinoza and the writers are making like a decided criticism of sort of the marketability that surrounds something like that definitely and and it that strikes me as something that could really happen like i feel like there there's two possibilities either this entire thing would have been top secret you know highest government people only nobody knows about it or it would have gone the extremely commercial route where it would have probably been even worse than this. And it would have been like, you know, Coca-Cola presents Calvin or something <laughs> like that. But um, but yeah, I could totally see that going down that way with like the huge Times Square interview with the 2020 anchors and, you know, the the uh, competition to name it. And yeah, that that struck me as pretty real (laughs) yeah because like i don't even know what's going on on the iss right now so (laughs) it's like they could have an alien up there that they're working on but yeah unless all of this stuff was like broadcast to where like the public would automatically know about it it doesn't seem like information that all of the uh, governments of the world that are working on the ISS would necessarily just readily volunteer until they have that under control because now right. it's like oh we have an alien up there and then oh yeah we see that the space station is crashing into earth or that it, you know the space station's gone and then there's an escape pod that lands in the ocean like there's gonna be like a system of checks and balances that gets blown way out of place when you sort of overextend yourself that way oh yeah definitely um and there's in they mentioned social media in one of the deleted scenes that like there's wide support throughout social media and you know it's just it's kind of this like i don't know this thing where the entire world's invested in it and like you said you know if all of a sudden iss is gone and it's the the escape pods crash back to earth then yeah everybody on earth is going to be panicking and maybe that's not maybe that's not the best thing maybe maybe keep it a secret until like you said it's all all under control and you know it's a known quantity you know what's going to happen you know what you're getting yeah and it's like i used to actually like watch 
astronauts perform experiments on the ISS. I actually had the app where you could watch the ISS live feed. So like you could see it when it's coming around the earth and then you see it like with the sunrise and all that. It's very cool. But most of the time, like you just don't see anything. So like even as someone who is probably more interested in the ISS and what's going on there than just like the average person, I still have no idea what's going on up there. So it like the idea that they're going to host this thing in Times Square and like really like pimp it out to full marketability is like it's unlikely. But also like, yeah, there is a version of the world that's probably way further down the line that wouldn't that environment would make more sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. All right. Well, if you're with me, you feel like doing some trivia right now? Yeah. Yeah. Hit me with it. Time for trivia. All right. It's it's not as extensive as I would have hoped. There's a surprisingly uh, small amount of trivia to pull from for this movie uh, to begin with. But for question number one, we had talked a little bit about Ryan Reynolds uh, and how he was shifted into the supporting character role. But he was supposed to be the main character, but he couldn't do it because of scheduling conflicts with what movie? The Hitman's Bodyguard. Correct. So, yeah, yeah, we get him being like the full Ryan Reynolds in the Hitman's Bodyguard versus like, yeah, it's a good movie. And it's like it's a good version of like what he does that has made him popular and made him successful. And then on the other hand, we have this where it's like he gets to like have a little bit of that but gets a lot more uh, dramatic and a lot more serious than we see in a lot of his films as well. So I just feel like it would have been nice to see him be the lead in this movie or at least get just more screen time because we both know that he is capable. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about it earlier, like I'm trying to imagine the those actors flip flopped in their roles. And it's I had a hard time picturing Ryan Reynolds in in the kind of. he would have done it very differently than Jake Gyllenhaal yeah. did. Definitely. Um, I mean, like I said, he does, Ryan Reynolds does have some dramatic acting chops. Um, so it would have been neat to see how, how he took it, but you know, it wouldn't, it would not have been a, a Jake Gyllenhaal performance. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I guess for anybody that's listening out there, since we talked about Reynolds and his dramatic performances, uh, in other films is there one that you really like that you would point to and be like hey that's a good example of him doing the non-ryan reynolds thing uh mississippi grind yeah that's uh it's a you know kind of ben mendelson right yes yeah um yeah he's a he's a a gambler who's kind of a kind of a good luck charm to ben mendelson's character and it's it's one of those like not easy to peg down the genre i guess you would call it drama but it's I don't know. It's it's got it's kind of a life story. I don't know. But yeah, I think he's terrific in that. And it's very against type. So did you ever see his uh, Amityville horror? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like he's good in that. But I think like he was kind of young at the time to be cast as the dad in that movie. So it just like it came at a weird time in his career where it's like it feels like now he's a little bit more suited for that. Yeah, he was probably like late 30s and he's playing a stepdad to, you know, like a 13 year old or something. So it's, um, yeah. How old is he now? How old is he now? He was born in 76. So he's 48. He, uh, he'll be, I guess he'll be 48 this year because his birthday's late. Like 
Let me August see. Right. When was that Amityville? Feels like it was a long time ago now. 2004, 2005, 2006. Yeah, so it'd have been like early 30s. Ish. Now I feel like I have to find it, but I can't. Oh, that 2005. Okay, so yeah, it was what does that make him? 31? Yeah, sounds right. I'm bad with fast math. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Close enough. <laughs> close enough to early 30s uh but yeah it just feels like maybe he wasn't like a, a tenured enough uh actor at that point to like step into that role but i think he did a good job with it and then if like uh i think it was called buried where he's oh, yeah. Yeah, buried, buried. buried alive and i mean that's like it, it's not great but i like the idea and to have it sort of all take place inside of a coffin is very claustrophobic and interesting so that, yeah. that's a good that's a good one yeah, that one's that one's uh, a lot of people seem to like that one, um, and I I do as well. Um, but that that is one that has has gotten some attention for the sort of against type Ryan Reynolds performance. Yeah, and he did one with I think Ben Kingsley also. Not I don't remember the name of it, but um, uh, it's like Ben Kingsley takes his body and then. Oh yeah, uh, selfless. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, which. That one was fun. I enjoy that one. Um, yeah. That's that's a more typical, like, he's not as comedic. Or he's not very comedic in that, but it's a, it's a typical action movie. He's in, like, leading man mode right. for that, yeah. Okay, let's move on to question number two, or else we're going to get sidetracked with just talking about Ryan Reynolds for two hours, which is fine, but we'll do that on a different episode. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, we'll, next one. <laughs> uh, so, question two, the production company Skydance had been making films since 2006, but life actually represents two firsts for the company. Can you name one of those? No, no, I cannot. <laughs> I was trying to even come up with a guess. Not working. So this was the first film they released that was rated R, which is pretty oh. interesting considering, I mean, you know, you've been in business for 11 years at that point and nothing had been R. And you can't really make this movie. I mean, you could make it PG-13, but you're doing yourself a disservice. Yeah, don't. Exactly. I want everything to be rated R. Just it's okay to make movies for adults and then yeah. let those adults with children decide if their like 13 or 14 year old is able to see that. Because yeah. I grew up that way and movies were still successful then. Like rated R movies were still successful then. And it didn't everything didn't have to be like watered down to like a common denominator of like, let's focus on making this accessible to everybody. It's like, that's not that's not how like art should be like, because if you're just making like art for mass consumption, like, is it even art anymore at that point? Or is yeah, it just absolutely. like consumerism, you know? And and it's the distinctions between PG-13 and R are kind of arbitrary anyway. I mean, like you, you say fuck more than once and it's got to be R, but the rest mm -hmm. of the movie could be exactly the same. It's like, that's stupid. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, we get movies that are PG-13 where it's like, OK, well, you can only use the F-bomb once and then you can say shit once. And uh, but, you know, you can kill a thousand people. Exactly. Yeah, just every, everybody can die. Blood, but... Yeah. Viol violence <laughs> but... is perfectly fine. But God forbid you say the F word. Exactly. Yeah. Like crush somebody under a tank. It's cool as long as the blood doesn't squirt out. Like it's what? Come mm -hmm. on. You can stab people as many times as you want. 
But if there's blood on the blade after you stab them, then we have to give you an R. So you just exactly. got to stab them, bloodless stabs. Yeah, there's so some, <laughs> some really terrifying movies that are rated PG-13. Stuff like uh, recent PG-13 movie, they slaughtered a toddler before the title card. But oh, just because wow. they didn't show it, it it ended up as, you know, PG-13. And I'm like, this is this is intense and terrifying. And well whatever pg-13 r give me r i like the word fuck <laughs> yeah me too and most of the time like even when i talk about like movies on this show what i've realized is that like i just feel like a lot of the movies that end up like here that sort of like that middle ground where it's like oh it wasn't received well and i'm like well what i want is like an r-rated version of this movie where the movie can be the movie that it wants to be without having to be like pigeonholed into this thing that has to be made with the wider audience in mind and i think a good example of that was uh sucker punch right like a lot of whether or not you're like really into Zack snyder or not sucker punch was the first time that he made a film uh that he wrote i think as well and it was the first time he did something that uh, like it didn't come from an adaptation so it was the first time that he had to do something that was pg-13 where all of the reasons that he was in a position to make Sucker Punch to begin with was because of his rated R work. So by the right. time that that movie comes along to be like, oh, we need you to cut this down to make it PG-13. And then at the end, it's like, well, yeah, people didn't like it. It's like, well, because it's not the movie that it probably should have been if you just let him make the movie that he wanted. So it's it's weird. And then, you know, I read recently that he was in consideration or in talks to possibly do a director's cut that would be rated r and i think the same thing just happened with rebel moon where it's like you're you're asking Zack right. snyder to come in and like make this big you know sci-fi epic for netflix and to like have it be a big deal but then as soon as it's released it's like oh well there's a director's cut coming and it's like so you're not only are you cutting him off at the knees as the director you then force him to undercut all of the negativity around the movie by being like oh well this isn't the vision that i wanted in the first place yeah. so it's like you you know it's a it's a double edged sword where both sides are hurting the other side yeah yeah the so the thing i think of when i think of you know like watering it down to pg13 is uh the fourth die hard movie live free or die hard they like all three leading up to it were r and suddenly they're like well we want to reach a wider audience so we're going to what no that's ridiculous it's a die hard movie it's got to be r it was that was that was a debacle man yeah. yeah. And I mean, like all things considered with it being PG-13, it's probably like not as bad as, you know, it, it could have been. But the idea behind it is like this is a rated R action franchise for people that like that. And then so to be like, hey, we're going to strip that out. And, yeah. you know, John McClane has to be like a watered down John McClane. It's like, what is what is the point of that, really? Just to like sell more tickets, which I don't know that it ultimately did did it resurrect the franchise i don't know they made another movie after that but people didn't like that either because it was pg-13 again so yeah i mean he couldn't even deliver his signature line because they they had to like muffle it with a gunshot or something it was terrible mm -hmm. yippee kaye my friend <laughs> <laughs> all right let's let's get to this third trivia question because we're gonna we're gonna be on the pg-13 uh well the anti-pg-13 bandwagon for a while here but uh question number three uh oh actually wait a second the other first besides being rated r for question number two was that this was the first project to uh, be released by columbia instead of paramount for skydance so it hit a couple of different milestones then question number three 
in one of the TV ads, it was revealed that the film used uh, B-roll footage from which movie? Um, Spider-Man 3. Ding, ding, correct. And that has probably lent itself to the idea that, like, this is somehow connected to the Spider-Man universe and that Calvin is Venom. And I don't know, Venom seems nicer than Calvin, to be honest. Oh, he totally is. Yeah. He's uh, he's more <laughs> personable, too. He's got he's got he's definitely got personality. Calvin, we haven't seen it yet. Maybe he has personality. Well, I mean, definitely later in the film, like you can see, I mean, the design of it, too, though, maybe lends itself to us feeling that he's more angry or fearsome because his face is very skeletal. And I mean, it does like start to come apart, too. So it's almost like uh, like an orchid opening, but that has teeth and shrapnel inside of it. Yeah, they it, it does get kind of funny when they give him a face. It's uh. It's certainly a choice. <laughs> it is. Okay, well, I think now is the part of the show where we go to Critics Corner. And that's where we can really hear all of the terrible things that the critics had to say about this movie. And in fairness, this is not uh, the lowest series of scores that I've seen for this, uh, for any film that we covered on the show. Like, we did uh, Robot Jocks most recently, which the episode hasn't come out yet, but the lowest score on the board for that was a zero. So we don't, we don't go to a zero here. We get to, we get to start with a 40 and that is Tom Huddleston. This is not Loki, but from (laughs) time out London, he says a handful of tense moments and some neat gravity style effects just about keep life ticking along. But the direction by Daniel Espinosa he of the dire child 44 is seriously shoddy. There's a moment towards the end when everything seems suddenly to happen at once and not in a good way. And the total lack of originality is disappointing. So this Tom Huddleston went for the throat on this one. He was like, I really didn't like this movie. And I'm also going to make it very personal. Yeah, like calling out the director by name and everything. Mm hmm. He's like, I I hate him so much. I'm going to even talk about one of his other movies that I hated. (laughs) (laughs) Vendetta. Maybe he didn't get into a screening or something. (laughs) There's a moment towards the end where everything suddenly seems to happen at once. I mean. Is he referring to like when the Soyuz docks and all of a sudden, you know, there's a melee and then everything breaks off and destroys half the station? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot going on, but I don't know. I mean, because it's like by the point that Calvin attacks Derry, from that point on, it's like the movie's basically a sprint to the end. So to be like surprised that towards the end, it's like that's in the I'd say that's in the first half of the film where Derry gets mauled. Mm -hmm. And then from that point on, like Reynolds dies. And then when he dies, like the communications go down. So then Kat has to go outside and then. You know, everything is happening very, very fast beyond that point. So I wouldn't say that it's towards the end, but I don't know, maybe maybe this is more a criticism of like the pacing of the film than anything else. But this just seems to be very personal from Huddleston. So I'm curious if there's some backstory there that we're unaware of. I'm going to have to do some digging maybe after the show is over and be like, hmm, what is going on with this Tom Huddleston fellow? Well, you know, you said it was the 
he's from an outlet in London, right? Isn't that yeah. where they filmed this? Maybe he tried they to did. get in, you know, for filming and didn't let him in. Yeah, see, could be. There might be something there, but yeah, to pick out like another film from the filmmaker's uh <laughs> library and be like, yeah, he directed this other piece of crap and I hate him. So <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty sharp and wicked right there, but we'll move we'll pretty, move on. Pretty still not a horrible score. Oh, no, it's not. Like but, I said, I've, I've seen zeros. <laughs> I've seen I've seen single digits, but I've seen zeros and single digit reviews that are nicer than that. So to to be that mean and still give it a 40, I mean, I think that's probably a win ultimately for Espinosa. It's like, hey, you know, he's being mean, but he mentioned one of my other films, still gave it a four out of a 10. Like, that's not, that's not too bad. Yeah, kind of the no bad press thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so let's see, we've got one, two, three fifties on the board. And that is The Hollywood Reporter, IndieWire and Movie Nation. So I'll let you pick one of those. Let's go IndieWire. IndieWire. This is Eric Cohn. Says, life spends its first act building up some big ideas, but eventually unravels into another monster movie in space. That yeah, is I mean, fair. Yeah, that fair. fair. Like, I, I mean, we talked about a lot of sort of the, the table setting that could have been. Mm. And I think, I think sort of lumping it into just like another monster movie in space does it a bit of a disservice because sure it is a monster movie in space but when you look at like monster movies in space like how many are there really because there's some space sci-fi there's some alien sci-fi but it's like this isn't jason x this isn't leprechaun in space you know it's not of that ilk this is a much headier piece of sci-fi horror and those movies are just like horror films that happen to be set in space where the idea behind this movie is the science right right all right i guess that's all right he gave it a five out of a ten you know and gave it credit yeah. for some big ideas at least <laughs> yeah yeah okay. i can see what he's saying but yeah. it didn't it didn't ruin the experience for me in nearly the same way it, it clearly did for him because i would have given it much higher than 50 even if i was laying out those criticisms yeah okay and then we've also got let's see one two three four sixties on the board and that is the guardian empire the telegraph and screen daily i would like to hear from the guardian the Guardian. Well, they gave it an entire sentence, but they gave it a 60. And this is Peter Bradshaw. I mean, I'm sure this is a pull quote from a much larger uh, review. At least I would hope so. Uh, Peter Bradshaw says it's a serviceable, watchable, uh, determinedly unoriginal film. But he gave it a six out of a 10. So like he he acknowledges that like it's well made and that it's watchable. So it's like it's not something that like he had to stop. But He's probably one of these people that was like, well, like Alien already did this and did it better. So I'm just I'm I can't like allow myself to go beyond that. Serviceable, watchable, unoriginal. Hmm. That's uh, it's very lukewarm. I'm especially sure. for giving it a, what it, was it a 60 you said? Yeah, six out of 10. Like that's technically positive, right? Right. right. <laughs> yeah, it's always weird to like read the reviews and to see that like some of the snarkiest stuff still comes with like a reasonably good score. 
But I'm guessing that Peter saw this and is like, hey, look, like the CGI looks good. The setting is good. Uh, the creature design is good. The cast is really good and they all do their job really, really well. But it is held back by it being just like a, a more realistic version of Alien, I guess. Yeah, I suppose it's it can be easier to lay out what's wrong with something than what's right with it or, you know, maybe more substantive to do so. Yeah, it's like it's a it's a weird experience to sort of watch a film and like have to be open critically about it because you know i've i was thinking about this last night because before i watched this i watched the super mario brothers movie and it was don't ask <laughs> but it was like so there, there's a lot of stuff i just wanted to like check all the boxes for like oh this is one of the animated films from 2023 that i didn't see i want to see if it's like in the conversation for best animated films of the year so it was like the 20 something ish movie that I had seen this year. And it was like the Mario movies, the only movie that I didn't like. And I was like, I just don't know. Like I was just like bored the entire time and just nothing about it really worked for me. I recognized that it looks good. Like the, the worlds that they designed based on the video game property was good, but it just didn't like do anything worthwhile. So it was like a weird experience to be like, it's the only movie that I've seen in 2024 that I didn't actually enjoy watching. But then I watched life and I was like, OK, like this has stuff where I am critical of this and I wish there was more of this. But it didn't mean I didn't enjoy watching the movie. Right. Right. So it is. A, it is a weird experience, but we'll move on because we've got two pretty good scores on the board coming up. And one of them is from Variety that gave it a 70. Oh. It's pretty high, especially around these parts. Uh, and this is Peter de Bruges says life's a thrill when it's smart. But it's even more exciting when the characters are dumb, <laughs> which is ultimately a paradox. The film wears proudly to the possible extinction of the human race. OK, so De Bruges is like, look, this is <laughs> this is what this movie is, right? Like it being intelligent gets it to a certain point. But then the human beings being stupid are what gets it across the finish line. And we're all going to die because of it. <laughs> I want to know, you know, I want him to point to the specific things and be like, dumb decision, dumb decision, dumb decision, because because uh, that's what would make make the review interesting to me. I mean, I'm sure we could go all the way through his whole variety article and see it, but it does seem like there's a lot of moments in the film where there will be like, hey, we know that we can't do this. They're like, OK, you're right. We can't do this. And then like two seconds later, it's like, I'm opening the door. It's like, oh, OK, well, he's <laughs> he's doing the thing that we just said we can't do. So, OK. Uh, and that's how Ryan Reynolds ends up dying. So I get it. But like that moves the story along and it like it has to be there in order to to make the next step happen. But still, seven out of ten. Like that's that's really solid, uh, especially around these parts. So and then we finally close it out with the playlist. And this is Drew Taylor gave it a 75 out of 100. Drew says, Movies today are too long and overstuffed. Life is lean, mean, and terrifying. It doesn't have much to say beyond, hold up, maybe we shouldn't poke around uncharted terrain so much, but with actors this committed, set pieces this exciting, and direction this confidence, it doesn't really matter. There you go. So this is someone who is able to just like enjoy what this movie is, recognize its strengths, understand its weaknesses but not be bogged down by them it's kind of how i feel yeah, yeah. i and think i gave it four out of five so that would be an eight out of ten yeah. 
does, does your scale hold up directly like that? Like when you jump to a 10 point scale? Um, yeah, actually, usually when I am, am deciding what to give it out of five, I convert it in my head to an out of 10. Otherwise things get skewed, uh, for me. I don't know. My scales kind of, uh, depends on my mood too. <laughs> like the same movie might, might strike me differently. And I might, if I, if I compare like two movies that I gave the same rating to, I might be like, wait a minute, I rated this one lower, but I actually like that one more. You know, I don't know. It's a big mess. That's why I'm not a critic. I'm just yeah. a, just a fan. Yeah. I, I stopped rating movies a couple of years ago. Cause like it had gotten to the point where like, okay, I'll use like a, 10 point must system and go from there and then okay well let me like switch that to letter grading where each mm -hmm. category each category that i consider is basically on a scale of 10 and then all that's average to a letter grade and i was like i'm over complicating this like there's no reason for me to do this and like the idea for me was like i just want to free myself from that especially when writing about film and then you know, I haven't been a big letterbox user and I'm trying to I'm trying to commit to at least the diary portion of that this year. And I've only given some five star reviews or five star ratings to things that I've seen other people I know, like give horrible reviews to. So I'm just like, no, I'm just I'm here to balance out. Yeah, exactly. People people don't like Drop Dead Fred. I'm like, I'm just giving that five stars because someone I know gave it a half star. So this way it's even. Uh, so I've been like a vindictive five star person lately. But for the most part for this year, like all I've done is use the diary. And then it's like I take some quick notes on like the first thing that I think of. Uh, but I I just I don't know. I I don't know that I would. I don't know that I would like try to rationalize scoring this because i'm sure i did at the time this came out in 2017 it was the first year that i was doing the website so i'm sure i actually like gave it an actual like grade but at, at this point i'm like i liked it and i think that's all that i need to take away from the movie but i'm, I'm happy to see that at least some people were in uh, brave enough to give it a uh, 70s because i mean even with the lowest score on the board being a 40 like that's pretty high given the stuff that I read around here a lot. And it's funny reading stuff that's like zeros. And like, how did you watch a movie and there wasn't a single positive thing to take away from it? Even with my experience with Mario, I was like, here, there's most of the stuff didn't work for me. I didn't enjoy myself watching this film, but there are good things in this film that I'm able to point to. So like to, I like I wouldn't give Mario a zero, even though I didn't like watching it kind of thing. So it's weird for me to ever see that from critics. It's like this person just came in with a vendetta and they're like, no. I know. I mean, you know, like there have been a couple of movies I've watched that I'm like, wow, this is like one of the biggest pieces of crap I've ever seen in my <laughs> entire life. And to, I don't know, any any movie like this with. With good production value and stars and like that the just those little things alone will bump it up to at least a two for me pretty much always um it's the it's the uh i don't know i don't know man that's i like movies i'm generally a pretty pretty <laughs> high reviewer i uh i i might have some gripes but but most things most things i'm positive about i almost i almost never don't give the little heart like on the letterbox when I put it in, you know, even if I think it's a bad movie, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's going to get a little hard for me. 
I mean, I'm kind of the same way. I generally like movies. I like going to the movies and it takes a very, very particular type of movie to fall into like the category of me not liking it. And I think of the 2023 calendar, I saw, well, by the end of 2023, I was like racing and I think I got to 150, but I think now I'm at like 160, 170, maybe from 2023, somewhere between 150 and 170. But of those 170, there's probably less than 10 where I was like, I don't like this movie or I like this movie was sort of like a, just a negative experience for me or I just got nothing out of it. Other than that, like for the most part, there was something that I was able to enjoy in most other movies. And like if I were really to like scale everything of like stars and ratings and all that, like, yes, there would be stuff that is in the lower quadrant, but for the most part, a lot of the stuff is just like in the range of enjoyability. There's stuff that I loved, there's stuff that I liked, and there's stuff that like I didn't like. But yeah, I kind of just like break it down into those categories. But the stuff that I liked is a pretty big pool. Yeah, yeah. I also I have a lot of empathy for filmmakers, and oh, yeah. it's it's a, it's a hard hard thing, you know. To and 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 the finished product is never. I don't know. It seems like it's got to be hard to have it brought all together like that. And, you know, there are a million things that could get tripped up and make a movie not work. So I'm always going to be looking for the things that do work and appreciating those. And um, well said. Yeah, that's I like it that way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's it's very difficult to bring the idea for a movie to fruition to get it financed even on the lowest level and to have it all come together and actually like get released that's very difficult to do and i started having to like rationalize it where it's like well like if i were making films would i want some you know nerd in his office to be busting out graph paper and rating this on a letter grade on a scale of like one to ten and all these categories like no probably not that's not what the purpose of the film is like that's not the reason that it exists so I had to like ask myself that and be like, OK, that's not something that I really like need to be spending my time with. And so I don't know, probably for like the last three, four years, I haven't like done any ratings. It's like I'll I'll sort of write about it. Not that I've been writing about film that much this past year, but I would write about it and then get to the end. And sort of when it comes like recommendation time, it's like here's sort of like the strengths and the weaknesses. And if you like this movie or this other movie, you would probably enjoy this. Or if you're a fan of the director's work, this probably like falls in line with the stuff you like about their other work. If you're not, uh, or for like a superhero movie, right. That comes out. It's like, well, if you're not like a hardcore fan that has to watch all of the, these projects or all of these projects, then you can probably skip this one and not really like miss too much kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So rather than being like, Oh, this is bad. This is a, this is an F on my scale. Like, eh, we've, I've, I've moved on from that, but I'm trying to be more consistent with at least capturing the stuff using the diary feature of Letterboxd. And then it's just vindictive five stars. So. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I definitely allow my ratings to be more uh, instinctive rather than yeah. formulaic. And that works for me. And it's not like anybody's looking at my ratings anyway. So uh, it's just, it's for me. And I use the diary feature. That's my favorite thing about Letterboxd. I'm I'm obsessed with stats. I'm like, how many movies did I watch this year? How many hours did it take me? How many books did I read? And like, it's 
it's uh it's weird but i admit that it's weird but but i love it <laughs> yeah it's like i now that i've been using it a little bit like through this month i'm like oh okay like it tracks you know how many movies i saw i can see which ones from what year which i was doing this all by hand like in notes just here's this movie this year this month this day and so i was like all right let me get away from being an old man and like embrace the technology <laughs> side of letterbox in that way because like some of the stats I'm sure would be interesting, but I definitely don't want to see how much time I spent watching movies at the end of the year because I'm going to be like, oh, my goodness, no. <laughs> I, I was like, I don't, I don't need the machines to know how many times I watched Jaws in my lifetime. And like if I logged every watch of Jaws and how many hours of Jaws just were my life, I'd be like, no, nah, I don't need to see that. When I see my screen time report at the end of the week and i'm just like oh no that's my average is too high i need to get that down like <laughs> yeah i uh this past year i started like i don't know i go into my letterbox stats constantly and i look at um like how the my how it lays out how many movies you've watched per week and then it gives you like your average number and i'm like i want my average to keep going up so like i gotta watch more than you know, 17 movies this week or something, you know, because then it will raise my average and, you know, like I'll maybe like be having a life one week, you know, God forbid, and only log 12 movies and be like, man, that's going to fuck up my stats. It's, it's ridiculous, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm, I'm in this weird balancing act of that. And I get enjoyment out of that. And is it limiting my life? It's stupid. It's stupid, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, do you want to do you want to share what your letterbox is so you can get some people to read your reviews and see uh, your star ratings connect Go with some it. other movie fans out there? Now you got to now I got to remember what it is. I, I think it's it's I'm not sure if it's exactly the same as my Twitter, but it's pretty much the same. It's at abandoned thought S, I think. OK, well, you can it confirm probably- that with me and I'll have time to add that into the show notes. Uh before this actually gets published okay yeah yeah you can see how many times i rewatch movies if you become my my letterbox buddy because uh it's ridiculous it's pretty insane i did think about pulling up and seeing how many times i've watched life um to mention on here but i didn't but i think it's it's definitely more than a dozen more than a dozen times i'm an obsessive rewatcher so i mean there's nothing wrong with that there was times where like when I was sort of watching on cable where I was like, okay, I know what movies are like doing the rounds this month. And then it was like, well, this is the best option of what's on. So let me play. And it's like, okay, it's 20 minutes in or whatever, but I'll watch it again. So it's like, that's how I ended up watching a lot of movies like 20, 30 times where it's like, yeah, it's not start to finish every time, but the movie's good enough where it's like, oh, I can pick it up like halfway through and be totally on board with watching the rest of it. Yeah, I think it would be fascinating if I could like, I don't know, if there was some higher power tracking how many times I watched movies from my childhood because uh, like Back to the Future, Lethal Weapon, Indiana Jones, those things, Tremors, I probably, it's probably 20, 30, 40. Yeah, like I've got some, I've got some serious numbers logged for those kinds of films. Yeah. Yeah, when I see like my total numbers on Letterboxd, it's like you've watched 200 movies. I'm like, I was like, I watched more than that last year, but I I need them to download my memory. Yes. To log all of my watches in order to actually have an accurate number. And part of me was like, okay, do I just take a day 
and log everything that I watched last year just for the sake of logging it. And then do I take a day and just go through like, oh, here's my whole like movie collection that I have and like log everything that I've watched just to like get caught up. And then every time I'm like, do I want to take that time and do that? I'm like, no. So let me just <laughs> let me start this year by trying to log all of my watches on the diary and see what that's like by the end of the year. And that's got to be better than what I was doing where I'm like, hold on, now I have to bust out the calculator and like add all these numbers together again at the end. Like that was a headache. So I'm glad to have at least gotten past that. And I'm trying to embrace Letterboxd a little bit more this year. Yeah, I think um, all of last year and I think like half of the year before was when I, that was when I started using Letterboxd and I've been, you know, um, consistent since i started using it of using the diary feature and every single movie as soon as the credits roll i you know pull out my letterbox and and put it into my diary so it's pretty it's pretty comprehensive um for a couple of years at least and then i did do that thing that you said where i go through my whole collection and and at least tell letterbox that i have watched it before and if i remember it well enough gave it a rating um so yeah there's a it's not it's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect, but it's there's a lot. There's a lot in there. There's a lot I'm, in there. That's my I'm life. definitely bad at by the time it comes to the end of the movie, remembering to log it on Letterboxd, because typically I'm like, OK, I'm about to watch this movie. Let me just like put it on my diary with no like or anything just to make sure that it's in there. But then sometimes it'd be like I start a movie and I'm like, oh, I don't have it in me. And I, I need to come back to this one. And I'm like, oh, whoops, it's still logged in there. So uh, hold on, let me erase that entry. And then I need to make sure that I come back and actually watch that movie at some point. <laughs> but yeah, if it's like, I mean, by the time I sit down, it's like, OK, I can watch a movie. It's typically like nine o'clock at night, at least. So what do I want to watch it? Do I take on a two to three hour movie? Do I watch something that's 90 minutes? You know, it's it's always a, a coin toss. And then. If it's subtitled and it's like past 10 o'clock, this is a horrible recipe. I will be falling asleep for sure. So those are movies that it's like, I need to start when the sun is out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's time considerations, emotional investment considerations, attention considerations. Yeah, sometimes sometimes you just need a 90 minute horror movie and just call it a day. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like my favorite way to close out the night is like, I was like, ooh, 90 minutes. Oh, this is perfect. I saw something like 86 minutes. I'm like, oh, sweet. This is perfect yeah. for what I'm looking for right now. I don't even care if it's good. It fits the criteria of being less than 90 minutes and I'm all, all for it. Absolutely. I do love a good 90 minute movie. I mean, you know, there are some extremely long movies that I love, but I'm not sitting down and rewatching them constantly. But a 90 minute movie, I will. I will probably rewatch a lot if I like it. <laughs> yeah. And I, well, I was thinking about this last night, too, in that uh, you had recommended doing uh, time travel month for film club, which we're going to do. I don't know what month it's going to be yet. So I think March, I probably want to give uh, another like free pick month for all the people who didn't get a chance to do that yet. And then we'll, we'll get a, a time travel month in there somewhere. But I also want to do a 90 minute month where yeah, I like it. the only requirement is that it has to be 90 minutes or less. And I want to see what gets brought to the table because there's a lot of people that like a lot of really long movies. And I'm like, look, I don't want to watch your six hour long movie. OK, I don't care how good it is. That's ridiculous. What do you want me to do? Watch it like a mini series? Like uh, there's no way I can do that in one sitting for sure. But 
maybe maybe we'll have oh god i don't want to do it but maybe i'll do it just just for the sake of uh seth and ben who are big uh satan tango fans so or what is it santa tango satan i don't know either way santa satan it's it's six seven hours long something like that so oh my god. i'll, I'll get like, to it eventually i could do that for a mini series because a mini series has emotional breaks and episode you know breaks like it's each one is a, like a self-contained story so you can i don't know I don't know if I tend to always watch miniseries straight through, but it's different than if I was watching a six hour movie. It just is a six hour movie. Woo. I can't I imagine. I need like I don't want to like put this onto the universe like I really need it, but like I need like an illness or like uh, <laughs> like a like a broken bone or something where it's like, oh, my hand is broken. I can't type. I can't do computer work. So I'm going to sit on the couch and it's like, oh, I can't play PlayStation or something either. So. That way I can just sit there, put it on and watch it or because that's what happened with a couple of series where I finally got caught up. It was like I was sick and I was like, I'm just laying on the couch, like not feeling good. So I'm like, all right, let me just put something on. And it was like, oh, OK, now I'm just like binge watching, you know, eight hours worth of TV. So I think that's, that's what I need. Not that I want it. I've gotten COVID <laughs> several times already and it sucks. So I don't want that again. But I need some moment like that where it just because otherwise I'm not going to commit to it. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Wishing ourselves illnesses and broken bones. I love it. <laughs> Going around in public, just like, "Hey, are you sick?" <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I always ask my guests, sort of before we get out of here, like, is there anything that you're working on that you want to let the the audience know about? Uh, no. I mean, you know, definitely nothing movie related. Um. I am a writer too. I do. Um, I'm going to be self-publishing a novel soon. So, and I'm sure that will be trumpeted on my social media when I finally freaking finish it. The story is finished. Just got to finish the cover art is really the only thing holding me back. And, you know, but you, anyway, it's, are it's you working on the cover art yourself? Yeah. Cause I have no money. So I, yeah, and I have a pretty specific vision for it. So, but it will anyway. That will be out soon, and I will, I will shout it from the rooftops when it is. So, <laughs> oh, awesome! I'm glad to hear that. Actually, for for the other show that I'm, that was the original show before this one existed. Uh, what I'm trying to do is put together uh, like a monthly sort of like creators conversation. So if you'd be interested in talking about the sort of like the development process and the self-publishing and you want to talk about the actual like process of working on it, I'd love to talk to you about that on the other show. Uh, I still have to sort of like figure out when I'm going to line that up, but I want to try to do like one a month for this year and see how that goes. Yeah, definitely. I uh, it's it's certainly an odyssey. So there's a there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> awesome. Great. Cool. Well, I will definitely keep my eye out for that. And then when you actually get it up and published, just like let me know or shoot me a link or something. And then I can add it to the, the show notes after the fact. And then anybody that listens to this will have easy access. Perfect. Will do. Cool. Thank you so much for being here. It was a lot of fun. I'm glad I got to rewatch this because it was like it's in that window of movies where it's like, hey, it's maybe a little bit too new for me to just like venture into rewatching. But it is like this is seven years ago now. So it's 
it's almost, you know, right. Like time just went so quickly. I didn't even realize that. I was like, when did life come out? I was like, it feels like it was like a 2020, 2019 movie. And I looked and I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. So it's been longer than I thought. Yeah, man. The, wasn't it 2020 last year? Like, I, I yeah. don't know. Time, <laughs> time these days. Shit. <laughs> but yeah, no, I had a great time. Um, so fun talking about movies I love. So. Well, I hope you'll consider coming back and doing this again for another movie that you love, but uh, throw some ideas my way and I will check the prerequisites. And if it falls into a certain range, then we'll, we'll go ahead and we'll put that on the calendar. Perfect. I know I like a lot of bad movies, so you might see me a bunch. <laughs> well, you've come to the right place. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. Thanks. It was good. My sincere thanks to Stephanie for not just coming on the show and chatting and having a great time, but for making this her very first podcast guest experience. I hope that she'll be back for another episode in the future, but you can check out her movie reviews and ratings and general taste in film over on Letterboxd at Abandoned Thoughts, but I'm going to put that up in the show notes for you. And of course, thank you to everyone who took the time to listen to this episode especially after a long hiatus. I know you have a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you do, please consider leaving a rating and telling a friend about it. And the new support page is live at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash badmovieswelove. I'd love to hear from you, so if you have a bad movie you love and or maybe would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact me now at badmovieswelove at thescheiss.com or badmovieswelove on Twitter and Instagram, and that's love with an L-U-V. And as always, take care, be well, stay safe, and have fun however you get your movies. <laughs>